Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of the Vintage Matches podcast. I'm your host, Adam Johnson, flying solo again today. On each episode of this podcast, I'll pick a sporting event from history and examine it through today's lenses. Just a reminder, this is a part of a series where we are working our way up to the Euro 2020 tournament set to take place across Europe this summer. We are about halfway through that project, and the game we are focused on today is the semifinal between West Germany and the Netherlands at the 1988 UEFA European Championship. To get the ball rolling on this Euro 1988 recap, let's quickly breeze through the format. It stayed the same from 1984, with West Germany chosen as hosts and 32 nations trying to qualify. Those nations were divided into seven groups, with the winners of each qualifying group advancing to the tournament proper. Then, the eight teams would be divided into two groups, with the top two advancing to the semifinals. From there, it was two semis and a final to crown a champion. Let's see who made it through qualifying. In Group 1, Spain finished top on 10 points, with Romania just behind them on 9. Austria and Albania lagged behind. Group 2 saw Italy outlast Sweden, Portugal, Switzerland, and Malta. A competitive Group 3 had the Soviet Union claiming top spot, with East Germany, France, Iceland, and Norway behind them. Group 4 went to England, who won 5 and drew 1 of their matches, to top a group including Yugoslavia, Northern Ireland, and Turkey. The Netherlands dominated Group 5, with Greece, Hungary, Poland, and Cyprus all trailing the Orangi. Group 6 was also competitive, as Denmark tallied 8 points, barely beating out Czechoslovakia, Wales, and Finland who finished on 7, 6, and 3 points, respectively. And finally, Group 7 saw the Republic of Ireland top the most competitive group. The Irish finished top on 11 points, with Bulgaria in second on 10, Belgium and Scotland both on 9, and Luxembourg netting just a single point thanks to a nil-nil draw with the Scots. The stage was set for Euro 1988, with the seven qualified nations, plus the hosts, prepared to lock horns with each other from June 10th to 25th across eight cities in West Germany. The first match of the tournament saw two of the favorites face each other in Dusseldorf. Quick story about Dusseldorf. In 2013, uh, August of 2013, I went on this incredible trip of a lifetime backpacking trip with my brother Austin and my friend Matt. And we went to seven different cities over the course of, I think it was about 24 days that we were there in total. And uh, yeah, just incredible. I mean, we all over Europe. We started in Greece. We finished in Barcelona. And uh, at one point, we were taking trains. We took a couple flights within that uh that trip and at one point we were taking a train and i think we were going from munich to amsterdam and we totally messed up our transfer we were supposed to transfer when we didn't and then we realized that and then that meant that we were gonna have to be on the train probably overnight uh which was fine because we didn't have a hostel that night to pay for so long story short i realized that there was one point where we had messed up the transfer so we actually got off on a transfer that we thought we were getting back on track for yeah long story we had a little table in our little quadrant on our on our train ride and we had left our tickets on that table so we're off the train at this point we're in this like little station essentially and i realized hey we don't have the tickets so i run back under the train to grab the tickets and before i could get back off to join matt and austin the train started going and uh i just saw them through the window and just kind of shrugged and look at them like well what do we do now um we were very stupid and did not buy phone plans before that so the only time we could ever talk to each other or talk to people you know back home was when we had Wi-Fi. Um, so yeah, so there's no way I could just call and be like, hey, just hang on a second, I'll be there in a bit. Or y'all just come up one, you know, one more stop and then we'll be at the same stop. So we lose each other, essentially. And um, there was one point where I was on the lo lower level of the platform, they were on the upper level and we just missed each other somehow. But I told them a message, I said, look, I can't get another train to <laughs> Amsterdam tonight. I'll just stay overnight in Dusseldorf and you guys will just figure it out tomorrow. Y'all just keep going. You're on the right track. I actually got off at the wrong place. You guys are going to the right place. So y'all just keep going and we'll figure it out. So anyway, we got separated for night and I stayed in a um, communal hostel in Dusseldorf, Germany, 
um, and one of the stranger nights of my life, but actually ended up being kind of relaxing. I got a little bit of rest and they had to actually sleep, you know, a little bit. Well, I don't think they slept much at the train station. I actually at least got a night of sleep, but uh, Dusseldorf holds a special place in my heart because of that. But anyway, back to the <laughs> back to the uh, podcast at hand. Uh, the match we were talking about, which was uh, West Germany and Italy, uh, ended in a 1-1 draw after Roberto Mancini and Andres Brema each scored for their nation in the 52nd and 55th minute, respectively. The next day in Hanover, Spain beat Denmark 3-2 in a wonderful match that saw five different goal scores, including the likes of Michael Laudrup and Emilio Butragueño. West Germany then took care of Denmark 2-0, with goals from Jurgen Klinsmann and Olaf Tone. In Frankfurt, Italy used a Gianluca Vialli strike to beat Spain 1-0. Spain then lost again, this time to the hosts in Munich, as Rudy Voller netted twice. Italy took care of Denmark 2-0, which saw the two favorites advance. Both Italy and West Germany finished on five points, but the hosts went to the semifinals as the top seed thanks to a superior goal difference. Group 2 got off to a shocker as the Republic of Ireland beat England 1-0 in Stuttgart thanks to a Ray Houghton goal. The Soviet Union used a Vassil Rats goal to beat the much-fancied Netherlands team 1-0 in their opening match. The Dutch, and particularly Marco van Basten, came alive in their second match as the Milan striker netted a hat-trick to cancel out Brian Robson's goal and see his side beat England 3-1. Ireland and the Soviet Union drew 1-1 in Hanover, setting up a dramatic final match day in Group 2. In Frankfurt, Sergei Alenikov put the Soviets ahead of England, but Tony Adams responded quickly with the equalizer. In the 28th minute, Alexei Mikhailchenko regained the Soviet lead, and Viktor Pasulko added to it in the 73rd minute. Simultaneously in Gelsenkirchen, Wiem Keefe's spinning header gave the Netherlands a 1-0 victory over a very admirable Republic of Ireland side. This meant that the Soviet Union would go through in top spot, with the Netherlands pipping Ireland for second. This also set up two excellent semifinals, with the first semi being our match of focus for today's episode. So come back with me to Hamburg on June 21st, 1988, for the 1988 UEFA European Football Championship semifinal between West Germany and the Netherlands. A quick word about this rivalry before we get to the match itself. This is one of those rivalries where one side hates the other more than the other. Aside from geographical proximity, the Dutch have rightly always resented Germany thanks to the Germans' occupation of the Netherlands during World War II. On the pitch, Holland went into the 1974 World Cup final as a revolutionary team and huge favorites. However, the West Germans, no slouches, beat Johan Cruyff and company 2-1 to claim the 1974 World Cup on home soil. This match in 1988 was billed as a chance for revenge for the Dutch, even though the only people still involved from the 1974 tilt were the managers. Renus Mikkels for the Netherlands and Franz Beckenbauer, who was a player on the 1974 team, was now the manager for West Germany. Speaking of Mikkels, his team for the semifinal read like this. Hans van Breukelen in goal. Right back was Barry van Erel. Center backs were Frank Reichardt and Ronald Koeman. Left back was... Hadri van Tegelen. In the midfield, it was Gerald Vandenberg, Jan Wouters, Arnold Muren, and Erwin Komen, Ronald's brother. And up front, it was Marco van Basten and Captain Rude Hullet. Beckenbauer's West German starting 11 was Eike Emil in goal, Ulrich Barocca at right back, Matthias Hergert and Jurgen Kohler at center backs, Andreas Brema at left back. In the midfield, it was Olaf Tone, Wolfgang Rolf, Lothar Matthias wearing the captain's armband, captain's armband. Frank Mill at his left side of midfielder. And up front, it was Rudy Voller and Jurgen Klinsmann. Both teams are playing essentially a 4-4-2, although the Netherlands probably had a little bit more kind of give to it with both center backs capable of coming out from the back and playing in the midfield um, and even coming all the way forward and taking you know free kicks and corners at times. So um, yeah, I would say the Netherlands had a little bit more of a of a free-flowing style and the West Germans was a little bit more rigid, but both were playing essentially a 4-4-2 and kind of allowing their their front two guys, uh, Van Basten and Hulet for the Netherlands, Klinsmann and Voller for... West Germany to kind of be a little bit more free in terms of playing up front. On to the match. Holland got the ball rolling, but Germany created the first couple of chances. And again, I will 
exchange West Germany and Germany you know, back and forth. Obviously, they become Germany just a couple of years later, but I will still refer to them as West Germany Times and Germany as, as Times. It's just, it, to me, it's interchangeable because East Germany was kind of molded, folded into West Germany and became Germany. So again, interchangeable for me. Uh, Hulet was playing a free, a free role and dropped deep to receive possession, but was also at times the furthest player forward for Holland. Around the 10th minute, Komen hit a fantastic long ball to Van, Van Basten, who controlled well. But as he shaped to turn and possibly shoot, he slipped and the chance was gone. There was a worry heading into this match that it would be KG, but the opening quarter was played at a really nice pace. The second half of the first half began with Van Basten carving out a decent chance with a header back across goal that Emil came to claim. A few minutes later, Van Basten laid on for Hulet, but his shot sliced wide. Voller and Klinsmann's hard running up front began to cause some problems for the Dutch defense. Kohler had a good chance following a German corner, but his header went just over the bar. In the 44th minute, Hegert went down injured in the box and had to be replaced by Hans Fluger. The match reached the break scoreless and evenly poised, with Holland probably just shading the first half. West Germany kicked off to start the second half, but the Dutch created more chances in the opening few minutes of the second stanza. However, Germany were given a chance to take the lead when referee Ion Igna awarded a penalty to the hosts after Rijkaard clumsily brought down Klinsmann in the box. Matthias, the West German captain, stepped forward and buried his spot kick despite Van Broeken getting a hand to it. The Germans had the lead and a raucous crowd behind them. A couple of minutes after the penalty, Holland made their first change, with Wim Kieft coming on for Muren. Just after the substitution, Matthias went on a rampaging run and set up Klinsmann, but the Stuttgart man hit his shot just wide. Matthias was hammered after playing that pass and stayed down for a couple of minutes, receiving medical attention, but he was able to continue. The Komen brothers hooked up for a half chance for the Netherlands, but Ronald's shot sailed over the bar. A couple more long shots from the Dutch followed as their frustration grew. In the 74th minute, though, the Dutch persistence paid off. Erwin Komen played a long diagonal to Van Basten, and the forward charged into the box with Kohler for company. Van Basten took a touch away from goal just before the West German defender lunged in. Kohler got the man instead of the ball, and a penalty was given. Ronald Komen then stepped up and dispatched his penalty into the left-hand side of the net, 1-1. Germany made their second change. Remember, it was still just two subs at this time. This is before the three-sub rule. A few minutes after the penalty, with Pierre Litbarski taking the place of Frank Mill. More long shots came at the West German defense, but the Netherlands could not carve out a clear-cut chance. The pace of the match slowed a bit after the equalizer, as all of a sudden both teams had something to lose. Don't get me wrong, though. This was not a cagey defensive match. Both teams were clearly trying to win. But with just a few minutes remaining, the Dutch took a huge step towards said win. In the 87th minute, West Germany advanced the ball forward nicely, and Komen had to clear really well from, for a corner. Nothing came of that corner, and just over a minute later, the Netherlands had their winner. The move started with Komen, under no pressure at all, playing the ball into Wouters. Wouters then played a lovely ball onto the ground for Van Basten to run onto. The Milan striker steadied himself and got his first time shot away and buried it into the bottom left-hand corner. It was a bit too easy for the Dutch, but the German legs had clearly tired. Erwin Komen went down injured during stoppage time and was taken off for Wilbert Suvren, which milked the clock even further. After 94 minutes of play, Igna blew his whistle and the Netherlands had their place in the final. It was the reverse of 1974. In that match, all three goals were scored in the first half, and this one, the second. In both matches, one team took a 1-0 lead through a penalty by their captain and then ended up losing the match 2-1. Life is a cycle, and so on and so forth. In the other semifinal, the Soviets controlled the Italians, winning 2-0 thanks to goals from Hennedy, Lytovchenko, and Oleg Protosov. This set up a final that was a repeat of a Group 1 match between the Soviet Union and the Netherlands. The Soviets won that battle, but the Netherlands won the war by winning the final. The Soviet Union controlled the first 30 minutes of the match, but a swift counter from the Dutch eventually led to the opening goal thanks to the dreadlocked head of Ruud Hullet. In a World Soccer article about the match, uh, they actually got Rinus Mikkels, the manager of the Netherlands, to kind of like write a recap of the tournament for him. 
uh, you know, from his point of view. And he talked about how he had really harped on Van Basten staying forward. Both both Van Basten and Hulett both could really play and like really could play as like number 10s really um, and kind of drop off of the main striker and, you know, play one twos and be creative. But the the instructions to Van Basten in the final were to stay far forward. They always needed an outlet. They obviously had guys who could uh, at the back who could play long balls like Rijkaard and Komen especially. He was just phenomenal at that. And they wanted an outlet at all times against the Soviet defense. So that was that kind of like to me opened up the match. Like I, I think I think him staying further forward after watching the semifinal and I just watching highlights of the final. I think because Van Basten would drop deep sometimes to receive possession, but they really, really pushed. They really harped on, hey, no, stay up, stay up, stay up. I know your instinct is maybe drop back and want to be a little bit more involved in the buildup play. But that outlet that you provide is just more valuable than sometimes you dropping deep to receive possession. And I think we saw that in, in the final. But uh, in the second half, Van Basten got his reward for staying forward by scoring one of the greatest goals in the history of the Euros. But Van Basten latched onto it and hit a supreme volley across the goal and into the left-hand side of the Soviet net. It really is a spectacular goal, one of the best goals in the history of the Euros. The Soviet Union were tossed a lifeline after Van Broeklin needlessly brought down Gosmanov in the box. However, the Dutch keeper redeemed himself by saving Belenov's penalty. After the penalty incident, the Soviets didn't offer much, and the Netherlands saw the remainder of the match to win 2-0 and claim their first, and to date only, major international trophy. So after we wrap up these tournaments, I like to kind of go over a few different categories and some things I've added to some recent episodes. And uh, one thing I want to do is read out the team of the tournament. I think that's something that's important um, for people to kind of get a sense of who are the actual best players at this tournament. And I think uh, for this one, it, it was it was pretty obvious. There's obviously a lot of Dutch players and only um, one German player, which we'll get to here in a second. Hans van Broeklin was the goalkeeper, obviously, of the Netherlands. The defenders were Giuseppe Bergami and Paolo Maldini of Italy, Ronald Koeman and Frank Rijkaard of the Netherlands. The midfield was Giuseppe Giannini of Italy, Jan Wojters of the Netherlands, Lothar Matthäus of West Germany, and then the forwards were Gianluca Vialli, Ruud Hullet, and Marco van Basten. So no Soviet players actually made the team of the tournament, even despite them making the final, which is obviously a little bit strange. But I think that is a kind of goes to show what that Soviet Union team was all about, where it was just kind of like a team over individual. It was just a bunch of really good players, but no like just superstars. And uh, I think you know, I think even. Even really like learned people about the history of the game, like I, I you know, consider myself to be, despite my age, th- there's no names on that list that really stand out. You're like, oh yeah, like I know about this, and part of that is because you know most of those players for that Soviet team didn't play their club football for like Barcelona and Real Madrid. I mean, they they you know they're playing for Soviet sides, which were good at the time, and sometimes very good, but they didn't have the same kind of cachet as some of the Western, more Western European club teams. So I think that's part of it. But also, yeah, that was just a really solid team that had a bunch of bunch of really good players but again no stars and also they had a few guys who 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 missed the final through injury or suspension or things like that um so they didn't have guys who were playing all the way through and like one you know guy that really stood out so but but i also thought it was interesting that there was only one one only one west germany player on the uh team of the tournament and that was lothar Mateus, which was well deserved again he's one of the greatest players of all time too some of these names are just fantastic i mean maldini coman reichard Mateus, uh, hulet van basten viali i mean these are just all-time great players so pretty cool that that uh 1988 team of the tournament is made up of that group Something that might be interesting is if I just thought of this as I'm recording this, but to kind of go back and look at all the teams of the tournaments and have them kind of compete in like a fictional tournament, which team of the tournament would be the best overall team? Does that make sense? I think that would actually be really cool. Uh, maybe that's something I'll do on the last episode of this series. Uh, but anyway, back to the other categories. Uh, the Golden Boot winners. This is a really interesting one. Okay. So the Golden Boot winners for both qualifying and the tournament proper both came from the Netherlands, and that was Marco Van Basten for the tournament proper. He scored five goals. He scored way more than anybody else in the tournament. The next highest was two. Um, and then in qualifying, it was John Bosman who scored nine. But 
But those goals are slightly disputed because there was a qualifying match that uh, the Netherlands played against Cyprus in October of 1987. Um, the Dutch won the game 8-0, but the result was a null by UEFA due to a firecracker being thrown at the Cyprus goalkeeper, Andreas Cheritu. So yeah, Holland won the rearranged game 4-0, but arguments still raged years later as to whether details from the first match should be credited to players' international records. So in that game, John Bosman scored five goals, the one that was annulled. And in the return game, he actually scored uh, three. So, or in the game that like I, I think officially you know counted or whatever, he only scored three. So that would have given him seven, which this wasn't the lowest scoring Euro, but it did fall short of the heights of Euro 1984. The last time West Germany and Soviet Union um, competed in the Euros, which is obviously those two countries changed dramatically uh, with the falling of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and then re reunification of Germany, the Soviet Union collapsing, um, and all of those nations being split into kind of their own sovereign nation. Obviously, that's a huge deal. And that's something we'll see as qualifying for the next tournament. There's just a lot more nations in qualifying because of the Soviet Union breaking up, um, which we'll see as we move forward. Obviously, there's only 33 members, I think, of, of UEFA in 1988. And I think uh, now in 2021, there's 55. So yeah, obviously, like the, the landscape changes quite a bit over the next you know 30 years or so. This is also the time where the Dutch finally get their well-deserved trophy for bringing such joy to the international stage. Um, it was also the only time that the Champions League and European Cup winner and the winner of the Euros came from the same nation as PSV had won the 1988 European Cup with Van Broeckelen, Komen, Van Erle, and Vandenberg, all part of both squads. So yeah, pretty crazy. I mean, obviously, this is only something that can happen in a Euro year. So there's been there's been club sides who, like, like, like here's an example. Um, 2008, Spain win the Euros, and then the 08-09 season, Barcelona, with a bunch of those Spain players, win the Champions League. But they didn't win it in 08 in the same season. That was obviously that was Manchester United in 08. So and then you look at, you know, 2012, um, 2012 Champions League winner, Chelsea, 2012 Euro winner is Spain. So they come from different countries. So, yeah, it's the only time uh, Euro 1988 where the same the European Cup winner and the Euro winner come from the same nation. So I thought that was actually kind of surprising. Um, that could change this year. Obviously, we're going to have I'm recording this before the Champions League final of uh, Man City and Chelsea, but we're going to have an English winner. And England is, you know, I, I think probably one of the favorites. I don't think they're the favorite, but I think they're one of the favorites to win Euro 2021 or 2020, technically in 2021. So, yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool if that repeated. You know, here we are, you know, whatever, 33 years on. So, OK, best shirt. As always, I'm obsessed with football shirts. And this one, I mean, this was actually really difficult because as I've talked about in the last episode, the shirt designs are getting more and more unique. And obviously more companies are coming into the fold. And Adidas is getting more bold with a lot of their designs. But I would give this one to the Netherlands. That just kind of crazy design by the by Adidas. Uh, the orange one, their home shirt was just beautiful. But the Soviet Union coming in a close second because they had a twinned design on their Adidas shirts. But the orange is just a little bit more unique than the red. So I'm going with the Dutch. But the Soviet Union, this is obviously the last time they have the CCCP across the chest. So that one gets kind of a special shout out because... Yeah, it's just like we don't see it again on the international stage. Um, there were some excellent shirts on display at Euro 1988, though, with Ireland also. I think they deserve a uh, a honorable mention. I think the Republic of Ireland, uh, the green home shirt, was was really uh, quality as well. So I think they deserve a special mention. My favorite player to watch. Um, I always choose a favorite player to watch uh, based on the match that I watched. Obviously, there's guys you can watch highlights of from all these tournaments, and I'm like, oh man, that was you know he was really cool to watch. But it has to be somebody from the match that I watched, and that for me would be Ronald Koeman, the current Barcelona manager. And uh, yeah, I think he. Just like a really, really unique player. Hullet and Van Basten were terrific up front, and Rijkaard was super, super solid. But Komen seemed like he was everywhere. His long balls were a huge weapon, and his recovery pace and defending smarts were a massive asset to the Netherlands. He could set up passages of play and finish them. He's probably the best attacking defender 
of the modern game. I really, I really believe that. Like, I think kind of like if you take, you know, his era onward, just in terms of what he brings, I mean, Sergio Ramos scores a bunch of goals, you know, but, but most of them are, are kind of, you know, off of headers or penalties or things like that. I mean, Coleman was a genuine creator. I mean, he, he would, he would create moves from, you know, from really deep and he would take their free kicks. I mean, he was a, a totally unique player in that he was a center back who really played as like a number 10 at times. So I thought he was the most fun player to watch from the, from the game that I watched, obviously. Uh, one random observation from the broadcast. Uh, the version of the match that I watched was in Spanish, and I can't say I have anything that stood out that much about the broadcast itself. But what did jump out at me was the excellent atmosphere created by both the Dutch and German fans. This is one of those matches that I wish I could go back and attend in person. Also, it is always nice to watch matches without VAR, but especially in this one where there are penalties given. The penalties were given, and the players just accepted it and played on. It didn't take an age to get everything situated and a guy walking over to a monitor and checking all this stuff. And there were times where there were penalty shouts that, you know, the players kind of, you know, they you know, raise their hand for a second or they, you know, yell at the referee for a second. But then it just continues. The play just continues. And life continued. The world continued to turn and like we all moved on. <laughs> there was no like, oh, what's going to happen now? I mean, there are more decisions that are correct now with VAR. But I just think what we've lost in terms of just flow of the game and just kind of pace of play. And we don't have these moments where, we have 22 world-class athletes running around the pitch and the game is reduced to watching one man jog over to a monitor and watch a couple of replays and then turn and give some decision. I mean, there's some drama in that, but I mean, I'd much rather keep watching the 22 world-class players play. And so I, I just think like that's been my kind of like inherent um, issue with VAR. And when I go back and watch old games, play just continues. You know, a ref makes a decision and play continues. Now there is room for obviously mistakes and things to be kind of like wrongly given or wrongly not given, but I just, I don't know. I think what we've lost is not quite worth what we've gained, if that makes sense. So it is nice to watch some of these old games um, without VAR. But yeah, that's, that's, again, probably a podcast for another time. And the last question we always talk about is, did the right team win? And again, that's complex and that's complicated in and of itself, that question. But I like to answer it in terms of the team that won, did they kind of deserve to win? And again, also complicated. I understand that. Is there ever a deserve or is it just simply the results? Um, I like to think about sports a little bit more romantically. So once again, I will have to say yes. Although this was a terrific Soviet Union side and their last great team before the fall of the nation, the Soviets gave so much to the early version of the Euros. So they really deserve positive plaudits for that. But they haven't really done much on the international stage aside from a semifinal run at Euro 2008 and a nice run at their own World Cup in 2018. I think if the Soviet Union would have won this tournament, it wouldn't have been that. It wouldn't have looked that bad. It wouldn't have been like, oh man, we look back at that one and eh, that's an iffy one. I think that would have been a well-deserving team. But when you look at kind of qualifying earlier parts of the tournament, um, who kind of played at the, the peak level, like when it really mattered, I would say the Netherlands are probably the deserving team. And I also just think names like Hulet, Rijkaard, Komen, Van Basten, they just roll off the tongue. And it's so awesome that they got rewarded with a major international trophy, whereas the Cruyff generation did not. And those teams kind of had some issues kind of in-house in terms of like how they interacted with each other and some kind of personality clashes. This team seemed to have gotten over that a little bit and needed that to get over the hump of actually winning a tournament. So I do think it's cool that that Netherlands team, it's their only major trophy to date, as I mentioned earlier, it's cool that they at least have that. Whereas the Soviet Union did win in 1960. So that nation did get a reward in terms of a trophy to show for it. So it's nice that the Netherlands also did. Maybe that's a little bit, you know, looking at it a little bit too, uh, oh, everyone's a winner, you know, mentality. But I do think like, it's cool that those players at least have this this awesome trophy to show for that. And yeah, I think that's that's just how I feel about this tournament. And I think this is this is another one that I just really enjoyed watching and uh, and researching. I think these tournaments, as, as I kind of move forward, they're getting more and more exciting. And I know there's a couple kind of like iffy ones to come in terms of like 
quality and the, you know, the champion is not being that great, but there will be really fun matches. So I think all the matches that I choose from here on out, I'll feel really excited by plus like the, the older, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 30. So the older the game, the less I know these players. Whereas like, you know, as we're getting into 92 and 96 and 2000, I now have a history of these players. Like I know them. I, I saw, I, I've seen them now as managers or as pundits and I've gone back and watched their club games or whatever it may be. And then obviously as we get into the kind of 08, 12, 16, like those tournaments, I'm, I watched every single match of those tournaments. So it's like, I'm going to be very familiar with those teams and players and be able to talk to them, talk about them on an even higher level. So I'm really enjoying this. I kind of like that this, this project has a little bit of both where I can kind of like research stuff that I didn't really know before and be learning. And then also have these other tournaments where at the end where I'm almost like looking back at them as like a pseudo expert because I watched so much of it and was so involved in the club game at the time, obviously. And so it's easy for me to kind of like remember those games and have like these extra details about them. And so that, that part of this project has been really fun for me, but we're kind of in that sweet spot where it's right in between, right? The like really old stuff where it's like, okay, I'm, you know, obviously this is way before my time. So I'm really learning stuff here and the modern stuff where it's, you know, I know all this stuff. I watched all these games when they happened. So it's kind of like right in the middle where it's like, just, you know, it's like a combination of the two, which I'm really enjoying. So I hope that's coming off in these podcasts. Um, I'll continue to kind of try new things. And this, this will not just be a soccer podcast as we move forward. This is, you can be leading up to Euro 2020. And then after that, I'm gonna start watching games from other sports. I mean, I'm a basketball coach. I've been a basketball player since I was five years old. So when I get to some of the basketball games, I mean, those games, there there are going to be some games that we do that I was at that are classic games. So can't wait to kind of get to that point. But I'm really enjoying this project. I hope you guys are too. Again, we're just over halfway now. Um, We've got a little bit ways to go. And then I'll do a little preview pod for Euro 2016. And then that'll be that. So hope you guys are enjoying it and uh, be looking out for Euro 1992 coming early next week. Thanks for listening.